I am really excited this morning. Some of you have already made his acquaintance, um, but I'm excited to introduce a friend of mine. In the grand scheme of things, a relatively new friend of mine, but a deep kindred friend of mine, Andre Franklin and his wife, Terry. He's a bold man because he told me to call her Terry Lynn, and she said she, do she doesn't like that, so I, I wasn't about to do that. Uh, <laughs> Andre, Andre and Terry. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> you'll have the microphone in a little bit here. Yeah, they're, they're here with their, their little girl, Mia, and are getting getting uh, ready to welcome their son, Minky, here, and that probably can't happen fast enough for Terry, so, yeah. Um, I've gotten to know Andre, because um, uh, the Franklins have, have come uh, via Houston to Durham, North Carolina, and have been here for about a year and a half and had a ministry job here, and uh, they're in the process of planting a church community, um, and, and this is where our, our deep, immediate kinship and friendship comes in. Um, they, they're, they're over uh, digging in in East Durham uh, and planting uh, Vanilla Church over there, and whenever uh, Andre and I get together, we always have something that we're trying to, to actually talk about, and, and three hours later, we never even get there, um, uh, because... It's just so uh, refreshing and energizing to talk uh, about the gospel in a place, in a neighborhood, and the way God's spirit is working through communities that are being uh, planted and um, at are at some stage of that kind of growth. Uh, we'll, we'll celebrate our fifth anniversary birthday this fall. And, uh, and the story, the story of Venia Church planting in a place, um, being attentive to neighbors, um, watering and, and growing in that in that place and, and bearing uh, deep fruit is 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 our story um, and it's a story that we're in the middle of uh, and it's a story that they're just starting and, and we're happy to be part of that story a, a little part of that story so I'm looking forward to Andre continuing our Lenten series in the parables of Jesus from Matthew and I'm going to invite Betty Jean to come and read the passage for us the five ill-prepared women went in search of oil to buy, and while they were gone, the groom arrived. The five who stood ready with their lanterns accompanied him to the wedding party, and after they arrived, the door was shut. Finally, the rest of the women turned up at the party. They knocked on the door. The ill-prepared bridesmaids, Master, open up and let us in bridegroom refusing I certainly don't know you so stay awake you neither know the day nor hour when the son of man will come this is the word of the Lord Grab a stool real quick. We'll put this mic down too. Chris, you're like 6'4". <laughs> on a good day. Um, good morning, y'all. Uh, 
just say, because this happened before where some, some coffee is dropped. Hopefully not. Um, my name is Andre Franklin. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Um, and so I am here with my wife, Terry Lynn, uh, and she is awesome. Uh, and she is a rib of mine, uh, AKA one of the most essential things that God has gifted me with. Um, and so we are planting a beautiful gathered community uh, in the neighborhood of East Durham. We are excited. We're in kind of that vision meeting stage. Uh, we're praying uh, for God to be faithful in a way uh, that we can see transformation and flourishing happen in the neighborhood that is very volatile on many sides. Uh, gentrification is happening. Um, you're seeing marginalization. Uh, you're seeing uh, tons of just rates of uh, dropouts in high school, uh, especially of minority men, uh, young men. And so there's a lot going on in that community, uh, but I believe that the gospel being planted in those communities is almost essential, right? Because as Christians, we have a lens that we believe that renewal can happen uh, through the people of God, uh, being kind of a window into the kingdom. Uh, so as we get started, uh, number one, I want to thank uh, Brother Chris and Sister Rachel uh, for the opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, but also, one of the things that I was reading this morning in Luke 12, uh, 39 through 41, uh, Peter asked a, he asked a specific question to Jesus, and I'm, I love Peter, uh, but Peter asked this question, and I want us to think about this question this morning, and it was after Jesus told a parable, and Peter asked, is this for us or for them? And Peter asked that question, just like as many of us ask the same question, right? As we hear Jesus' harsh teaching, sometimes we come to the text and we assume that that's not for us. We usually villainize the Pharisees as if they just, they were just these rude, most wicked people to ever exist. But yet, a lot of times we fall in line with them. So, to tell you that, to kind of ask you that question, I want you to think this morning, one, that this is for you, this teaching is for us, and that we wouldn't use the cop-out, and we wouldn't ask the question or demonize people as we come to the text, and assume that the disciples were holy, and that the Pharisees were the most wicked people ever to exist. Because when you look at the journey of the disciples, right, a lot of times they asked questions like, who's, who's going to sit right next to you, Jesus? Who, who's going to be these people that are, that are great and with you and ruling in the kingdom? Uh, as he, Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, as Peter was like, you're not going to die like that, right? So the idea that I want to accomplish today is, one, the unfamiliar, unfamiliar, unfamiliarity that's a hard word to say. Uh, it's a hard word to say. Trust me, I stumbled even in as I was practicing. I'm like, it's just going to happen. Uh, the unfamiliarity of Christian life, um, but then the journey to the feast. And so, as we move into the text today, some of you would have heard this multiple times. We come to the text or we talk about Jesus on Sundays, and we hear the same message 
on average or same variations of the message. And I would ask this morning that if you get to a moment where you're tempted to zone out because you've heard it before, ask the Lord to show you a new perspective and maybe a different point of view on the text this morning. So, will you please pray with me? Lord, we come to you as joyful kids this morning, waiting to hear a narrative, a story that is better than any other story, and news that is better than any other news. That we would find refuge in you, that we would be nourished by you this morning, and that we would be challenged by you this morning. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said, amen. So I want to ask a question. How many of you in this room are routine people? You can raise your hand. Yes. Ha, ha, ha. I know who I'm speaking to, right? So if you're a routine person, sometimes you get really unholy, right, when somebody messes up your routine. All right. And so for me, there was actually a day where, uh, so my wife and I, we traveled a ton this year. Uh, we actually drove to Houston. Uh, one time, which we will never do again, uh, we had a teething child. She was teething all four of her molars at that point, um, and I drove 21 hours straight. I hallucinated. I did. I was for sure that strobe lights were happening on the little street where it had, you know, the lane dividers. I'm like, man, these things are bouncing off light. This is crazy. Turns out I was just hallucinating uh, after driving 21 hours. So, uh, but one of the things that we did a ton was fly on planes, and so. Uh, not only together, but I did by myself. And so one time, in particular, I was coming back from New York from a conference, and I was tired and grumpy. Uh, and I was like, man, I got to go through security check. TSA costs too much, right? The TSA free check, I'm not doing that. It costs way too much. So I got to go through the security check. I took off my shoes, got to take off. They always got to pat me down for some odd reason. They think I have something on me. Uh, and so that was a little weird. I promise it just, I have like, Sweaters. Anyway, so anyway, all right, so let's get past that. Uh, but the idea was that I found myself boarding the plane, and when you're tired, sometimes you just see routines that you don't normally see. And so things are amplified. And so I was sitting in my, my seat, and all of a sudden, I just started looking at the routines that take place. And I'm like, I already know what's going to happen. As the cabin door closes, somebody's going to come up, and they're going to give their spiel. Now, we already know who what the spiel is, right? If you're on Southwest, they usually get on this kind of gray, weird, green, tingy, kind of intercom cell phone looking thing. And they say, the exit rows are here. The bathrooms are here. Here's your oxygen mask. Make sure you put yours on before you put your neighbors on or your kids on. And then, right, here's your life vest. This is how it works. Although, it was a different type of flight this morning, uh, and I found myself on a flight that as soon as she was about to go and talk in this intercom, uh, the TV screens dropped down. And so TV screens dropped down, we're watching this presentation, and then music slowly but surely starts to play in this background, and I'm like, what is going on here? Then neon lights come on, and I'm like, this is gnarly, okay, I'm thinking something's wrong, then as the music begins to play, it begins to be a different presentation of 
the safety features of this aircraft. And I'm like, I'm in Club Southwest. I have made myself to a disco version of this presentation. And then there were two things I walked away from that flight with. One, I am a routine person. I missed the normal presentation. <laughs> I was like, please don't do this ever again. I'm tired. And then two, I'm never going to Southwest again. Uh, and so you could be asking, right, as I would, why would I use that as an illustration for this text? And I would tell you that I believe in Matthew 25, where we are, is that a huge disruption, kind of on a macro level, of a routine that the people of God at that point have been in for a long time. It's not a bad thing. Don't hear that. It's not negative. But what they were taught for the longest was the idea of Jewish feast, right? Where that celebrated their history, their belief, God blessing them, and they're very so they're so very rich. And then also, the religious elite at that point, right? They had certain expectations of the messianic hope. And I just remember studying this, you're seeing this idea of the religious elite always kind of using religion to oppress or to gain the upper hand. And so their idea was this guy's going to be from the line of David, meaning he's going to be kingly in a way that they viewed kingship. Uh, that he not only was going to be kingly, but he was also going to be a warrior. Right? He was going to take the Roman Empire by force. This is going to be the messianic hope. This is going to be the guy that does it. And then not only that, that they were looking for someone from Bethlehem and not from Nazareth. Not a stone worker, not a tectonic, not a stone worker. Jesus wasn't that. I don't know if you know his statue. The brother wasn't that. Right? He was actually a guy that came in riding in on a donkey, right, we see that, which if you, in their perspective, are thinking, oh, if you're a king, you're going to ride in on a stallion, on, a, on, on something that is a little bit more presentable than a donkey, right? I'm thinking Shrek in this moment, right? You, you know what I'm saying? So, like, riding in on a donkey, right? And then, also, he's casting out demons. He's saying things like, uh, if you sell all that you have, you'll be rich. Oh, that makes no sense. If you... Uh, serve and give your life away, that is what you were called to do. The first will be last. The last will be first. Oh, man, this is gnarly. Jesus, what are you saying here? Right. He was talking about how the temple would be destroyed. That was a no-no in that time. Turning over tables in the temple, healing the sick, casting out demons. He is telling people that leverage religion, that they need to repent or they will not inherit the kingdom they already assume is theirs. Mm. That's gnarly. That's crazy. And so to go on a little micro background, what I want to go back to is Matthew 24, and it's not going to be on the screen, so bear with me, but Matthew 24, 1. Uh, the disciples make an observation, uh, and they make an observation about the temple. Uh, and so they say, Jesus, look at these buildings, because they didn't, code to the that Jewish temple a ton. So they were 
And this is why I love the text, right? Because you can read the text and understand that it is a beautiful narrative, right? And there are descriptions in there. And this idea of the disciples saying, oh my gosh, they were enamored with the beauty of the temple. And Jesus is basically like, well, that'll be, that'll be torn down. That'll be in rubble soon. And so at this point, as we see in Matthew 24, the disciples are actually at a point to where they might be getting it a little bit. They might be getting it, and this is Matthew 24, 3. I'm going to read it. Later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. The disciples say this, we don't understand your prediction. Tell us, when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign that you are returning? How will we know that the end of the end of the age is upon us? And so one of the things that I want us to know about this parable is the micro context is that Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. He's talking to his closest people. He's here. Imagine if he was talking to us. Imagine this. So as we read this parable that talks about the five ill-prepared and the five prepared and the idea that the door was shut, those who ran out of oil didn't come prepared. He is talking to what we call disciples of Jesus, the closest people of Jesus. And one of the things that I want to accomplish here is maybe not ask the question, who are those people? Because we clearly know who those people are. But I I want us to ask a what and how question. The disciples ask great questions in those moments. How would this happen? The disciples ask, how can we pray? Right? How, do you, how do we pray? Or the rich young ruler, these pivotal kairos moments, the rich young ruler asks, what do I need to do to secure eternal life? These are kairos moments, meaning these are impactful moments, life-changing moments that what and how questions happen, not the who. Because if we ask the who question, on average, you would think the five ill-prepared are the Pharisees, or the five ill-prepared are the wicked, or the five ill-prepared are the people that are not the, the, it's the them, not the us. And so, I'm going to read the text one more time for us. So the five ill-prepared women went in search of the oil to buy, and while they were gone, the groom arrived. And the five who stood ready with their lanterns accompanied him to the wedding party. And after they arrived, the door was shut. Finally, the rest of the women turned up at the party. They knocked on the door, and ill-prepared bridesmaids asked, Master, open up. Let us in. Bridegroom refusing, I certainly do not know you. So stay awake. You neither know the day nor hour when the Son of Man will come. There's a couple obscure things about this passage. One is that the bridegroom is late. We all know uh, that it's usually not the bridegroom that's late. Uh, it's usually the bride. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, and so, but the idea is that the bridegroom was late. And in these weddings, they would go for days. Their procession would start usually in the evening, but they would go for days. And that was usually after a year-long engagement. 
So it almost makes sense that the bridegroom, it almost would not make sense that the bridegroom would be late. And then that there will be a lack of preparation on behalf of the bridesmaids. There's like a wedding party, right? And when we look at this text, one of the things that strikes me is that when, when I see the bridegroom being late, and also the invitation and the idea that they're all welcome, even though some have missed the party and weren't able to come in. I want us to understand when we come to these parables, number one, when we try to make sense of who they are or what's happening in this parable specifically, we will always err every time. And then two, Jesus, when he says parables, usually talks about an invitation and people receiving that invitation. And hear me when I say this. The invitation Jesus always extends on average, is that he assumes that you're in until you say otherwise. He assumes that everyone is included and that everyone will be there at the end in the wedding feast. Revelation 19.69 talks about this beautiful marriage lamb of the supper, or supper of the marriage lamb, right? the, the, the beautiful wedding feast that will go on for eternity. It talks about that. And it assumes that you're in until you say otherwise. And Jesus actually had a parable about a feast where he actually invited every time people to come, and they denied and said, I'm not coming. I'm not co- I have better things to do. And then the person who showed up that was actually not invited to the party, he was excluded not because he came, but because he wasn't willing to participate in the celebration. It's, it, it says he was wearing plain clothes, and he was almost secluded and standoffish. But Jesus' invitation went to everybody in the city because the religious elite weren't accepting or the other people weren't accepting, so it went to everybody. No matter who you are, black, white, homosexual, not homosexual, living on the street, whatever it might be, the invitation went to every single person. And those were the people that might have been lowly in society, who might have been outcasts, that actually accepted because they didn't build up a pride. And they enjoyed the marriage, the, the, the feast of the Lamb. And so, As we continue, I want us to think the how and the journey to the feast as we go. And one of the things that I believe Jesus has called us to do as we wait in preparation is practice the ways of Jesus. And what that entails, Matthew 28, 6 through 20, 15 through 20 says this. I'm here speaking with all the authority of God, who has commanded me to give you this commission. Go out and make disciples in all nations. Ceremonially wash them through baptism in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then disciple them, form them in the practices and postures that I have taught you. Show them how to follow the commands I have laid down for you, and I'll be with you day after day to the end of the age. Simply put, that means practice the ways of Jesus and teach others to do the same. And one of the things that says twice is disciples. 
And so that word in Greek is methetes. Y'all can say it. Practice with me. Methetes. Okay, we got some linguistic majors here. Okay, I love it. Say it with me one more time with the little, put your chest in there, okay? Uh, Mestetes. Here we go. Put some bass in there. That's what I'm talking about. Um, what that means is learner, disciple. And so uh, one of the closest things that we have in our culture is apprenticeship. I have a friend who's a tattoo apprentice, and what he does is he learns on the job. He practices, and sooner than later, he'll be able to look and do the same things that his apprentice does. So his art will look the same. He'll be excellent. Right? That is the goal of apprenticeship. Now, we have examples like the show Apprentice. I don't know if you remember the show Apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. Uh, then we also have internships, which really are an excuse to pay uh, no money or less money for a full-time job. Um, and in our culture, like, those are the closest things that we might have. But the idea of apprenticeship is that at that time, it wasn't open to everyone. So the funny thing about the disciples was that Jesus grabbed kind of this ragtag bunch of people. At that point, discipleship, number one, it's not inherently Christian. It's actually that culture. I mean, Plato had disciples, right? It was this idea that you were just a teacher, but specifically here within the Jewish culture as a rabbi. And so what we would see is that you would actually go through a series of tests to make sure you're worthy to be an apprentice. And then not only would you go through a series of that, then you would actually follow, because most rabbis were itinerant. And so you would follow the rabbi wherever they went. And so you would eat what they ate, you would talk as they talked, you would share the message that they shared. Uh, and the goal at the end was to look as if you couldn't even distinct you between your rabbis. That was the goal. And the saying was being covered in the dust of your rabbi. That you would be close enough as you followed him that you just might catch the dust that is kicked up from as he walked. That's what we're called to do as we follow Jesus. To be close enough. Not saying that we get it. We're still learners. We will always be but that we would take that time just to be close enough and just want to be close enough that we might be covered in the dust of Jesus. Now, I know you're not excited of what a sandstorm might look like, right? But that's beautiful, and that was the culture. And so as we look at this, one of the things to be prepared for the coming of Jesus is to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. The point, is, the point of apprenticeship is not to exceed the authority of your teacher, but is that you just might look exactly like him after you're done. Jesus Willis says, Dallas Willis says this, he says, does not call us to do what he did, but be as he was. Permeate it with love, then doing what he did and said becomes a natural expression of who we are in him. So where we are in Christ should functionally flow through us, and that we would practice the ways of Jesus. So I have another Greek word for you. It's called minnow. Say minnow. That means remain, stay, or reside. Uh, the idea, the sense is to continue. Uh, and so that's the John 15, 1 through 12, where we get our vision statement from as Vinay Church. Vinay is Latin for the vine. And the idea is that we would remain, stay, reside, abide in Jesus. And that we would not pragmatically live 
as we follow Jesus, but that we would allow the gospel to penetrate every aspect of our lives. My wife and I, we went to a space on our honeymoon called Yountville, California. I remember Yountville because it was very weird. It was almost like the Truman Show. Anybody watch the Truman Show here? Have you ever seen it? And so it was white picket fences, and it was people walking their dogs and their kids rolling strollers. Gas was 550 or like four. It was, it was crazy. And I just remember, I was like, Terry and I, we were, this is crazy. Like, do people actually know what's going on outside the world in this space? And so we were there for a day, uh, by God's grace, and we found ourselves like, wow. I can only imagine the struggle to be a Christian in a place like this. Because people around you have nice white picket fences and their gardens look great. But I wonder if their kind of spiritual or metaphorical garden or their metaphorical backyard looks like Jumanji. Just looks crazy. But we, wanna, we like as Christians to upkeep the front yard and to make sure we're all nice and orderly. So as we come into a space like Oak or like anywhere else that we have, that we're kept up, right? So that nobody can look us in the eye and ask us the question of how are you doing and that we might break down. We don't like to be perceived as weak. We don't like to be perceived as broken. And I would say that in the faith, when we look at what it means to abide, what it means to practice the ways of Jesus, it means submission. It means openness. It means transparency. It means that we won't always get it. And that's what I want us to see as we continue to go through this text. The disciples don't get it. They're actually very confused. Just like we are, as we, if you were to ever read Matthew 25, 1 through 13, you will be confused. Because it makes not a lot of sense. And what Jesus is saying is stop trying to prepare. Stop trying to prepare for the coming, because you most likely, as we see in the text, everyone falls asleep in this text. There's been many theories of people that in this text will fall asleep, and that's, that's the people who are eternally damned, and that's the people who uh, have died. But in this text, as you read 1 through 13, everybody falls asleep. We can't predict the coming of Jesus. But what we can do is practice the ways of Jesus, abide in Jesus, and love those who Jesus loves. And I remember uh, I had a friend by the name of Mike, and Terry knows who Mike is in Houston, and this was a dear friend of mine. And he was temporarily living on the street, and uh, he was 50 years old. And I remember he came up to me one day after church, uh, church I was working at, and he said, hey, Andre, would you disciple me? And I remember uh, just not knowing what that looked like. I was like, disciple me, okay. Here's my six-month track of discipleship. And it really does not work with somebody that you literally don't have a cell phone with. Like, it just doesn't work. And I had to rethink what discipleship looked like. And I remember in that moment, as we went through a year of just walking together, that he struggled with identity, that he struggled with the idea of being kicked out of the church at a young age, that he struggled with even as God, is, is this true? 
He taught me a ton in that year, and I'll never forget Mike. He's not dead. He's just living in Houston. But I'll never forget Mike. And he's a great and dear friend to our family, and we love him. And I remember that at that moment, I learned more from Mike than I'm sure he learned from me. Because I learned that no matter your circumstance, right, no matter where you are in life, you're not greater than any other human being. And Jesus got that way. That's why he laid his life down for his friends. Because he understood and he lived a life that we're called to live into, which is a new humanity. And we don't usually get that what that, what that really means, but Jesus is actually doing something that is crazy. He is. Like, this is unfamiliar to the people there. Like, the idea of serving, the idea of actually giving all that you have away, the idea, these things are not normal. These things are actually very, very, very controversial. And that's why when Jesus came through teaching with such authority, this was unheard of. A guy that was probably, he was homeless, probably didn't shower every day. Uh, we have fluoride in our water. He didn't, so he, his brother could have been missing some teeth. Could have. Right? The idea that somebody would come and have authority in that way was unfamiliar. And so as we continue, I have a couple more things, and one of the things I want to talk about is not only do we dis- be disciples, abide in Jesus, and love those who Jesus loved, but we also have rhythms of detox. Detox is the idea of resetting your body. Right? If you do it with food or you have a juice cleanse, the idea is to reset your body. I believe seasons like Lent are meant to do that. I believe that we have rhythms in our culture that we always need to detox from constantly. And one is workaholism. Right? The idea of 40 hours a week has gone away. Most of you know. Most of you feel it. Right? The idea of 70 to 80 hours is actually the normal work week at this point. We need a rhythm of detox from that. Because we've been called the Sabbath well. But we as a people on average don't rest well. We are overworked. And our culture actually gets excited for those who are being overworked. It actually says, hey, here's merit to you being overworked. To you being tired every day, here's some merit for you. That's, that's not how the kingdom works. That's not how it works. We have to rest as a people. The second is the rhythm of fragmentation. We love the us versus them. We have it a ton in the church. We have it a ton in our world. And what does that look like for us to actually detox from the idea that there is an us and a them? That, number one, in the body of Christ, there's been unity that's supposed to be called. We're supposed to be called to look different. And for years and centuries, the church has fought the wrong fights. And we have looked as if we are a disunified people, which is scary because the body cannot function. If the leg is doing something different than the other leg, then we just can't walk straight. And the us versus them is what we do. Right? So for an America, the idea of whoever it might be that is against us is the them. That's the scary thing whenever we think that way as Christians when the message of the gospel is unity. 
and not just, not just kind of the unity of I like you and we're hanging out and we're cool, but the idea of unity across enemy lines, unity across what? The cultural, socioeconomic, ethnic lines. That radical unity is what we're called to look like. And then lastly, um, the rhythm of disenchantment is what we face. There's a little explanation that has to come with disenchantment. And what I mean by uh, disenchantment is something that we've learned from the Greek culture. Uh, the Greco-Roman culture had this idea of gods, and people were low people, nobody really cared, they were kind of just pestering the gods, right? The Platonic idea of spirit and physical was actually separated. The weird thing about Christianity, and the unfamiliar thing to that culture, was that God is transcendent, meaning that he interjects into human affairs. That is not normal. And not only does he interject into human affairs, but he actually, in Genesis 1, holds humans of high standing. And he says, they are the only creation made in my image. Wow. So, what does that look like for us as Christians? How do we actually navigate that the gospel is actually the antithesis of what our culture says? Or their culture says? And there's a book by the name of how to not be secular. And his idea, a guy named James K. A. Smith, he talks a great deal from a guy that's a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. Uh, and what's he, what he does, he explains our perspective on our world. And he says we have this disenchantment view, meaning that there was an atheist that once said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Hmm. What does that mean? And he would say that's the ghost of transcendence. He would say what the ghost of transcendence means is that we don't understand that our spiritual life actually affects our life. That sometimes as the church, that we actually come to church and that we compartmentalize church and that we go to our job and that we don't think they interact. That is scary. Because that Jewish culture that Jesus was in, there was, this, there was no idea of sacred and secular. And I know you guys are students and I, I seen the quote on the page, right? The idea on the uh, website that says, there were no sacred and secular spaces. There's only sacred and desecrated spaces that can be made sacred again. That's the view of the scriptures. That there's no sacred and secular. Not just some pieces are Jesus' inheritance, but all creation is. And so, as we look at this, he talks about how we as a culture in America uh, struggle with the idea of exclusive humanism. And so what that means is that we believe and find worth in ourselves. We say we are it, we can find worth and meaning in ourselves. That doesn't work on average. And we see because we're feeble human beings on average. And so, um, and he, he means this like in a way we can find work, we can find work so exciting that we find our meaning in our work. Uh, and we slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it and say, this is renewed. Uh, or we fall into the trap of becoming, having technology become a means of our transcendence. That we are an age of technology, and we are prideful about it. That's why we bought the new iPhone, right? Because there's going to be limitless possibilities sooner than later that we're going to be able to accomplish through technology. And I'm not demonizing technology, but what I'm saying is that that has become America's transcendence that one day we'll be able to accomplish a Tower of Babel of our own 
And that's the idea that we have to fight, the disenchantment. And here are a couple things as I close that I want to address. The seasons of Lent drown out the voices of culture and amplifies the voice of God. Every time it loosens the grip and rhythm of our culture and has, has, has the ability and gives us the opportunity to free us up that we might be tethered to freedom and life in the kingdom. Alexander Schmemann says it like this. He says, the liturgical traditions of the church, all its cycles, services exist. First of all, in order to help us recover the vision and the taste of the new life, which we so easily lose and betray. So that we may repent and return to it. It is through her liturgical life that the church reveals to us something of that which the ear has not heard, the eye has not seen, and what has not yet entered the heart of man, but which God has prepared for those who love him, and specifically for Lent. And in the center of that liturgical life, at its climax, as the sun's who rays penetrate everywhere, lies Easter. And so as we anticipate Lent, this is preparing us for the journey as we look at who we are, and who God is. And it amplifies his voice in our life. Second is that we would Sabbath well. That uh, John Mark Comer, uh, in a book called Guard City, says it like this. That's why the Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator and he is good. We are his creation, and this is his world. We live under his roof, we drink his water, we eat his food, and we breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. And our Sabbath is usually weird because we might send emails. We might do a couple other things, right, uh, that pertain to work. And we find ourselves in the portal of, oh, I'm just going to send a couple more emails. And we end up not resting at all and not kind of de- disengaging. Um, and this is the practice. Sabbath is the, the practice of disengagement. Uh, and so he says this. He says, we take a day off from toil. We give him all fear and anxiety and steers us away from worry. And we stop ruling and subduing, which God has called us to do in Genesis 1 or in Genesis through the creation story. And we just do. And we remember our place in the universe that we never forget that there is a God and we are not him. And lastly, our appreciation of the table. As we look at this text, The idea is that Jesus is going to come, but we might most likely be asleep. He might most likely be doing something else. He most likely won't be caught in maybe a church service practicing the ways of Jesus all the time. It might not happen that way. But the beauty is that he's going to come. And that as we look at practicing the ways of Jesus, abiding in Jesus, serving those who Jesus would serve and love and that we would practice rhythms of detox and disengagement and that we would always practice coming to the table often. I was in my undergrad and I remember, we'll stand up this time real quick as we close. And I remember my wife and I, uh, we were there, we weren't, I don't know if we were married at that point, um, but we were at a church that I loved dearly. And I remember coming up, and they said, hey, we, we just want you to serve. 
once you serve communion, once you serve the elements. And I remember holding the bread and the loaf of bread, and I never did this before. This is something I wasn't used to. Uh, and there was somebody with the wine and juice next to me. And they came through the line. It was about, I would say, six, easily to 600 to 700 people that came through this line. And I remember holding this bread and saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And then listening next to me saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. And it was almost as if the gospel, in my point of view, has shifted. It was almost as if Romans 5, 8 says, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not, that, that, that doesn't matter just for the people who are outside the church or who don't know Jesus yet. That's for everybody. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I remember as I said that over and over and over again, I begin to weep. And I find myself not looking for the us versus them, but seeing that as Jesus says in the wedding feast that we all are in until we say that we're not. Meaning that we don't accept the gift of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that shifted my perspective on who I love. My love is not restricted to people I like, to people who look like me, to people who act like me, to people who believe the same thing that I believe. But it's actually for everybody who comes to the table. And I believe as Christians, we get the gift of practicing unity and not fragmentation. It's not a us versus them. And so as I pray for us, there's a quote, uh, and I was finding a way to weave this in. There's a quote that says this. Watch, therefore, Jesus says at the end of the parable speaking about Matthew 25. For you neither know the day nor the hour. And when all is said and done, when we have scared ourselves silly with the now or never urgency of faith and the once and always finality of judgment, we need to take a deep breath and let out with a laugh. Because those, as we who practice the ways of Jesus, what we are watching, what we are watching for is a party. And that party is not just down the stream or down the street making up its mind when to come to us. It is already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes and laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its final, or as it, of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It is all part of the divine lark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her wedding present china has been chipped. He is a funny, er, he's a funny old uncle with a salami under his arm and a bottle of wine under, under the other. We, indu- we indeed need to watch out for him, but only because it would be such a pity if we missed all the fun. Hear me when I say the idea of eternity is very real, but practice the ways of Jesus. Abide in him. 
Love those who he loved. Serve as he has served. And practice rhythms of detox and and, and disengagement from our culture's norms that we might follow the unfamiliarity of Christianity. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much that although I said a lot, it was long. God, that you open ears. And that we today uh, might leave different than when we came in. And that the joy of looking at the wedding feast and that we have a name on the lips. That as we accepted the invitation to follow you and be covered in the dust of you, that we might look at this parable and understand the complexity and confusion that might come from it. That we might understand that we can't predict your coming. But that we would wait in expectance not as if this world was, oh, this world is eternally damned, but that we would understand that there is an opportunity for renewal through the body of Christ, that we would love well, we would serve well, and that we would embody grace as you have. So, Lord, you are good. We love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.